Welcome to the One Signal Podcast, where we aim to educate listeners on product, industry, and best practices to retain and grow your customer base. This is your host, Josh Wetzel. We've got a great guest today for you, John Crowther, VP of Product at One Signal, who's uh, uniquely qualified uh, to talk about the topic we're going to tackle today. He's been a long time MarTech product leader and has a tremendous amount of experience leveraging machine learning and uh, the new topic du jour, AI in MarTech tools. We appreciate you joining us today, John. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Josh. Happy to be here. Well, it's good to have this conversation. So you've been at OneSignal coming up on two years. You've had a very distinguished career. I'd love to hear some of your background and kind of what's led you to this point. Sure. Happy to walk you through that. I've spent the last, at this point, 20 plus years focused on building and delivering largely B2B SaaS software and products that really tackle problems of large scale and impact. So I've had the opportunity to really tackle some unique challenges that require leveraging machine learning techniques at scale. And I think one common theme across some of the projects that I've tackled is how to efficiently scale personalization, which I think is extremely important when you think about customer engagement at scale. So I started my software career at a company called Demantech, where we really focused on merchandising optimization. And literally, at the time, we were trying to build really develop a unique understanding of customers by building demand models for every product in every store across a large retailer's landscape. So if you think about scale for a large grocery chain or a Walmart or a Target, that could mean they're managing 50 million plus price points across that ecosystem. So really trying to do something that had never been done before at scale that couldn't possibly be done just by human alone. That's awesome. And then you you left there, you went into another machine learning field product. Yeah, once we so we grew and, and scaled the demand tech, and then we went back and I joined some folks to try to do something slightly different at a company called Eversight. And there we were kind of flipping things on the head a little bit. Instead of just trying to leverage historical data to understand how consumers are going to behave, we tried to do something that was more, more predictive in terms of trying to figure out how consumers are going to respond. So we we launched a platform that we initially referred to as Offer Innovation. So we tried to create new digital offers to understand how consumers might respond to those through a multivariate testing platform. So there we started leveraging machine learning to really classify the way people responded to promotions to do a better job of offering up what might consumers most respond to based on the, the characteristics of the promotion. So in some ways it was flipping, kind of being beholden to historical data, but to start to sort of uh, predict forward what people are going to do in a more uh, generative way, if you will. So Interesting. kind of flip the problem on the side, if you will. And then join one signal, obviously, and you, you had some other companies in there, Inkling and other great places, but at one signal, ton of data. Is that one of the driving forces of joining and kind of the machine learning background? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, just before I joined OneSignal and when I started my conversations with George, I think one of the things that naturally drew me in was the the scale of the problems that OneSignal is trying to solve and really scale on a couple of dimensions. So scale just in terms of the number of customers that OneSignal reaches with more than one point, at this point, more than 1.9 million users on the platform. So huge scale that way, huge scale internationally in well over 100, 130 plus countries around the world. And then for each individual customer that we interact with that uses our platform, the scale of end users that they're trying to reach is truly amazing. We have customers that are literally sending billions, if not tens of billions of messages to their end users. And so you think about every message is a decision of, you know, who's the right audience for this message? What's the right time to send it? What's the right content? 
So you think about you know trying to send billions of messages and you're trying to make all those individual decisions. It's naturally a problem that lends itself well to to some kind of machine-driven algorithms to really make that scale effectively. So that I thought there was, while being different than some of the work I'd done before, some naturally interesting sort of intersections of stuff I had done. Yep. That's great. So we're a few minutes into the show, and I actually probably didn't do enough uh, preamble on the content. Obviously, you you all see the the title of the episode, but we really wanted to talk about generative AI how generative AI could play an impact in customer engagement specifically. And I'm really excited for John to be here, given he has a tremendous amount of this experience at other companies looking at using training data from a machine learning standpoint, or again, now what everyone's calling about AI. And generative, quite frankly, is the part of where it's getting better and it generates a better result based on that data, which is pretty cool. So I wanted to get a sense from you as you think about generative AI, our product, our category. What are the thoughts you're having? Sure, yeah. So I think, I mean, it, it, maybe it helps just to start with, you know, within generative AI, just to make sure people are aligned to what it is. Because it's getting tossed around a lot, obviously, in, in the current press. Every yep. day you open up the paper, you see another article on it. But I think what's important, like other forms of artificial intelligence, generative AI learns how to take actions from past data but it also creates brand new content. So I think, you know, whether that be a text, image, even computer code based on that training. So instead of simply categorizing or identifying data like other AI solutions, it's actually generating things that are brand new. And I think that's really what's captured people's attention is that that generation, thus, thus the name generative AI. And obviously the most famous kind of current application is ChatGPT which was uh, released by OpenAI, which is Microsoft backed, right? And so when you start to look at some of the applications of generative AI, I think it's really making people's heads turn in terms of the art of the, the possible. So I think there's a lot that can be done in terms of, you know, more text-based stuff, as well as when you start to intersect the text with image creation, so much of the customer engagement space is about generating a combination of text and images to engage your consumers. So if I can have a platform that doesn't simply look at what has been used before, but can start to give me new suggestions of what can be leveraged in the space, I think that's really, really attractive when you think about customer engagement at scale. Yeah. Let's talk about specifically generative AI in the digital marketing space. What are the sort of areas you're seeing or interesting? Yeah. So I think specifically within the digital marketing space, I think some of the ways that it can impact. One is it can just really improve both the, the quality and performance of the digital marketing assets by really enabling more you know, personalized and engaging customer content and experiences. So I think it what it specifically does, it addresses one key bottleneck by greatly increasing the speed at which content variations can be created with, with nothing more than well-thought-out prompts. Right. So if, if you think about that end-to-end -end process of I am going to craft a set of messages to send to my end users. I think especially with you know companies of all size that we work with, we work with the mom and pop startups as well as the large enterprises. And often the people charged with actually creating that content, they're juggling multiple jobs, right? A lifecycle marketer or people in those seats don't have all day to sit there and handcraft one message after another. So that ability to scale that message creation, I think is, is super important and the more yep. you can scale that message creation, the better messages you can create and the more personalized messages you can create. So I think that's a lot of the way that it can ultimately impact the, the digital marketing space is really scaling that. Yeah, 
And you you somewhat touched on this, but just wanted to reiterate, where do you see this leading or like what could this lead to kind of near term? Yep. So yeah, I think what you're going to start to see in terms of where this goes is I would say rapid iteration phase where people are just sort of testing it out. But I think what people are focused on is how do I generate lots of variants that I can quickly test and improve my messaging effectiveness, as well as just create more variants across my entire audience that become more engaging. I think ultimately, as they create more variants for multivariate sort of testing of of message effectiveness, I think there's naturally going to be a need to streamline that process as much as possible. So the more this can be built into a flow that is continuously updating and modifying the messages that are being sent to consumers, I think the more effective it will become. But that'll have to happen gradually because I think there's going to be initial natural reluctance to turn too much over to a pure sort of automation. So I think you'll see it leveraged more initially as coach versus as a you know full sort of automation of the messaging sequences that are being sent. Yep, that makes sense. So to summarize, one was an area you see that it's going to have a huge impact around execution quickly, but it's going to be more of an assistant. And then secondly, would be around improving and kind of optimizing the result. Is that a fair assessment of how you would see? Yeah, I, I think it's a good way to think about it. And often these two work in concert with each other. But I think when you think about any of these technologies, it's good to go back and say, hey, what am I trying to achieve? And it's either I'm trying to execute more quickly you know, and or a much against a much broader sort of space, or at the same time, I'm trying to improve the quality of the answer I'm getting. So you think about executing more quickly, that's create more messages, more content more quickly, which ultimately allows more time for personalization, right? The, the bottleneck in personalization is having enough time to create more variants to, to reach more targeted segments, right? So that's, it really helps to address that. And it helps to address that with the same or even, you know, ultimately sort of less staff than you may have available today. And then simultaneously, you're just trying to get to better answers more quickly. So the more engaging the content, the the copy can be, the more unique and engaging the images are the first time, the better chance you have of engaging your audience. You're getting to sort of better messages. Or it can even over time with the right training data can help you understand to better understand based on the type of message you're trying to send. It'll probably help you learn what are the best channels to try to deliver that. So I think there's... And again, these things tend to work in concert. The the scaling and efficiency also lets you learn quicker, which then lets you drive more optimized answers. So it's not like they're separate, but they're the primary areas of impact to think about this kind of a technology. Yeah. Okay. What are some of the lessons from your experience that are important to keep in mind? Yeah. So I think there's a a bunch of things to think about as you're bringing this kind of a technology to market and trying to, to leverage it to solve problems. So first... I always go back to sort of product management first principles, which is what's the most pervasive, high value and urgent problem that you're trying to solve. And so in this case, uh, you know, with, with powerful tools, it's easy to go down rabbit holes of solving very intricate problems, but those may not be the ones that are going to be most impactful for your business. So I think you know, don't get distracted by edge cases, but really focus on the areas of impact. So I think in the early rollout of some of this and and some of the trials that people are talking about, there's a lot of talk about, hey, I've got this large language model, I can create endless test variants now. Well, that's great. But I think what's just as important is, well, if I can create all these variants, 
do I have the staff and the time and the inclination to actually see those experiments through, then make decisions on it and, and start to scale that? So what's interesting today is that as we work with our customers, there's still only a, a fraction that actually regularly run A-B tests. Yep. And so if I now have a platform that goes from running two tests to the ability to create 10 tests just as quickly, that's only good if I then have all the other infrastructure in place to actually monitor those 10 tests and then decide which ones I want to pursue. So it doesn't mean it's not an important problem to solve, but I think it is, you know, based on where you are as a customer. And if you're looking to adopt some of this, ask yourself, what is the problem that's most urgent, most pervasive? And is, is that creation of variance, for instance, the current most urgent problem or not for my business? And I think different businesses are going to be different points of that spectrum. Yep. And I know you got more points here. So what else? Yeah, so I think in this, this is definitely coming a lot up in conversation a lot. I think focus on building trust. Uh, if I go back to sort of my demand tech days, I think this was like super important. So another way of framing focus on building trust is don't do anything dumb. It takes a long time to earn trust and it takes seconds to destroy it. And so building and leveraging technology that is coming up with trusted recommendations is super important. And I think with any of these things, and you're seeing that with the hallucinations with large language models, they can say things with absolute certainty that are 100% wrong. And so I think the implementation of these technologies is going to be really important of thinking through how do I make sure not just that I give good answers. I think that's almost the easy part. It's how do I eliminate the bad ones that destroy trust and really having a process. I think definitely will be a big problem with, with generative AI. It's clearly something that, uh, you know, ChatGPT and others are, are very focused on how do I continue to get better at, at eliminating some of these sort of hallucinations. A piece of this is finding ways to open up what I like to call the black box. When you give a prompt to a machine and you get answers back, the more you can understand how it came up with the answer or what it was based on, I think that's an important part of building that trust. That was something that uh, both my prior companies, we always sort of focused on that. How can I give just an, not an overwhelming amount of context, but enough context as to how the answer was derived to build up trust? And I think that's something that hasn't quite been cracked yet with some of this uh, generative AI is, you know, whether it be some of the image generation, you know, there you want to know, well, did it leverage any copyrighted material? If it's the language models, it's like, well, just even knowing what is the base of information it's using, if it's not currently open AI, it wasn't, going, wasn't using the most recent history, right? So I think yep. understanding what level of history is being used and, and what it's based on is important to building that trust with the users. Yeah. You got a couple more points here. Yeah, I, th I think for all these, I mean, there's such a rush to try these things out right now. And I, I sit around and I've got two daughters and you throw in prompts and you see what kind of fun responses you can get back. So I think everybody's starting to experiment with them. But I think there's takes a little bit longer to go from what I would call fun experimentation to truly useful sort of solution than you might think. And I think a lot of that journey is around how do I ensure I have the right context of the business problem? for what I'm leveraging. You know, by context, that can be for large language models, it, it can be trivial things. Like if I'm trying to use it to send out a push message versus an email versus an SMS, obviously I'm going to have different contexts in terms of character limits and things like that that I can embed in the, the message. But I yeah. think there may be other kind of more nuanced context. If I'm trying to use it to personalize messages, there's this fine line of context between making the message personalized enough, but not too personalized where it feels creepy. So how do I create the right guardrails? And I think a lot of 
figuring out that business context and how to program in a set of guardrails for this is really just a function of sort of trial and error. So all your early tests have to be heavily scrutinized. You're using machines, but somebody is reviewing everything that's coming out until you can go back to my prior point, until you're actually being able to build that trust. That just takes time and iteration to go through that process. And so I think, I think anybody who's jumping in early on this stuff has to be conservative. And you even see different approaches in the marketplace today. I think clearly Google so far with Bard has said, look, we're trying to oversteer to not put out bad content early, right? I think similarly, Adobe and with uh, Firefly is, is similarly thinking about how do I how do I be very conservative to not sort of destroy trust out of the gates? Others are, are willing to take a little bit more risk, but at the end of the day, building up that context is just going to be a it's a bit of a game of trial and error. And so that you know that takes months, <laughs> you know, not not typically sort of days to really get that refined. Yeah, agreed. So what other lessons? How would smaller software vendors companies leverage this to create differentiation or value add? And you touched on some of this up front in terms of yeah. optimization as it relates to our business. But I'm just curious, given your background. Yeah, so I think the other critical thing in how do you start to leverage this technology within the context of sort of business software is what's really important is embedding this really incredible science into good business process itself. So, you know, at the end of the day, just building a integration to one of these APIs to sort of leverage one of these models that piece of it's probably the easier part. I think what's really important is really understanding your users of it and what is the business process in which they are trying to use it and how seamless can I make that? I mean, that was one of the things we learned at, at sort of Demantech when you, it was great if you could spit out literally millions of price recommendations, but if you couldn't make the process to review and approve those easy, really be able to focus on how do I streamline that down to just look at the outliers that actually require human review then it wouldn't get used because it was an overwhelming amount of recommendations. This is going to be the same way. If I, if I can create lots of different message variations to test or to try, how do I create a process, a business flow that's going to make it easy to review those quickly and know which ones I actually need to spend any time on? Or maybe maybe I can get to that high level of sort of automation. But if I take the number of messages I'm creating and multiply it by a factor of 10 or a factor of 100, I have to think about the business process of then how do those get reviewed and approved before they actually get distributed to customers. Or maybe ultimately they get to a point where they don't, but there's going to be this period where they do. And then really thinking about that, the seamlessness of that business process. What am I doing to my end user's workflow is super critical. So in some ways it matters almost more than the science itself. I'll take a good answer that's streamlined and easy to review and approve is almost more important than going to the nth degree on the science itself. Because at the end of the day, it's it's these real world problems of just having enough time to feel comfortable with the answers is, is something to spend a lot of time on. Yeah, that's a critical component. And it kind of going into your principles as well earlier, which which makes a ton of sense. Just summarizing, ultimately, you kind of went through a bunch of these components, but when you summarize kind of that the principles of how you're thinking about it and approaching it, what does that look like? Just to remind the listeners. So some of the top principles I always sort of take away and sort of how we're going to you know leverage and apply this. Firstly is focus on what is your most pervasive high impact and urgent problem to solve. And I think second is, you know, how do I do something that enhances and but doesn't and doesn't destroy trust? So really focus on that trust element. Third is just making sure that I'm going into this 
in setting up a learning environment that prepares me for the amount of time and iteration it's going to required, be required to do this at scale. So I think if you go in thinking, oh, I'm going to plug this in, I'm going to be good to go, and you're not having a long enough time horizon for actually iterating on this, I think you're going to be disappointed. So go in with that long mindset. Early adopters are patient and willing to work through those kind of early challenges. And then finally, I think it's how do I ensure I can embed this technology into a workflow and a business process that makes sense for the end user. It can't be work additive. All these technologies get rejected if they feel like they're work additive. And so how do I remain workflow neutral or even you know subtractive over time? And really thinking that through is, is super important. And I'm going to go back for a second here and let's narrow in on one signal. How do you think about it, generative AI as it applies to one signal? Yeah, a couple of thoughts come to mind. I think applications of this is going to be transformative over time in the customer engagement space. And, and we were really excited as to how we start to apply this. And I think what excites me specifically with one signal is we have the largest and most diverse customer base on which to learn from. So we have everything from three-person app startups to Fortune 500 companies that, that use us across a huge range of industries across the world. And so I think that really gives us a massive learning advantage as we roll out new AI-based solutions on which to really uncover situations and learn quickly on where it does apply well and just as importantly where maybe it doesn't apply well. Where does the problem scale up? Where does the problem scale down? I ultimately think there's a lot of value to this kind of technology for the smaller customers out, out there. I think this is one of those technologies that historically some of the advanced technologies have only worked for the enterprise. This is one of those technologies that I think will be just as transformative for the smaller companies in the market. And you know, we have that massive customer base to leverage and make sure that what we're coming up with is solutions that's gonna work across that full range in the market. And I think you know, when you think about learning, ultimately, that diversity is so key. So there's a great book out there that I read a few years ago by David Epstein. It's like, why do generalists triumph in a specialized world? And it talks a lot about the value of bringing diverse sets of knowledge together to optimize problem solving. And I think one signal really has that diverse customer base. And so that's why I'm really excited about what we're going to be able to achieve with some of these technologies. It's almost stealing a quote from Steve Jobs. The best technology is the intersection of liberal arts with really good sound science or tech in this instance. And yeah, that was great. I think a ton of good content and thinking. I know you're spending a lot of time addressing this internally, externally. It's a hot topic. So very much appreciate you joining the podcast. And it was great having you on as a guest. It's your first time. We got to make this a regular occurrence. Yeah, absolutely, Joshua. It's uh, it's been too long to actually get on the the podcast, but look forward to continuing the conversation. Certainly about this, I think you know we're in the early innings of of where this can go, and really looking forward to exploring and and sharing some of our plans here. Awesome. Well, everybody, uh, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, subscribe at any of your podcast directories. We can find at Spotify, TuneIn, Apple. Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and many others. And if you enjoyed it, please provide a positive review. We thrive off of that. And if you're looking for a great customer engagement software used by more than a million companies across the globe, you'll be in great hands with OneSignal. So try us today for free at OneSignal.com. In the meantime, have a great day and enjoy your exploration of AI and uh, other great customer engagement topics in the future. Thank you. Bye-bye.